Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You probably have seen or heard Dr. Lena Wen, one of our country's most compelling public health leaders, who's been a beacon of light during this long siege of COVID-19. But you really have to hear her story, which is as admirable and remarkable as any I've had a chance to explore on The Axe Files. I sat down with Dr. Wen this week. She's just written a new book called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health, in which she tells her story. Here's our conversation. Dr. Lena Wen, it is such a pleasure to see you. We've had the chance to be in boxes together on the screen at CNN, and I am a big consumer of uh, of your your wisdom, uh, especially through this virus. Uh, but welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you. Thank you very much. Great to see you, David. I have admired you and your leadership and work for so long and love your podcast and so am thrilled to be on with you. Thank you. Well, listen, let's make this a mutual admiration society. <laughs> Everybody knows you for your views on the virus, which you speak about widely and people can see on CNN. They don't know you. They don't know your story. And you just wrote a book called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. It frankly blew me away because I'm a consumer of great stories. This one is almost incomparable, and I, I want to do it justice. So before we get to talking about where we are relative to this virus, I really want to explore how you got to this moment. And we should probably start with the fact that your name wasn't always Lena. <laughs> right. That was a name that, like with many immigrants, was conferred on you, but you were born in China. Talk about your early years there and your family. Well, David, I actually did not mean to write about my story at all for Lifelines. And Lifelines was also not the original title of the book. The original title was Doctor for the City. I had intended to write a book on the work that we did in Baltimore. I was very proud of having led the health department. And I wanted to show, for example, about how we were able to save more than 3,000 lives because of our work around opioid overdose pre prevention, I wanted to talk about Be More for Healthy Babies and how we reduced infant mortality in our city by 38% in seven years. But um, when I um, wrote those chapters for my publisher, my publisher basically said to me, this is really boring. <laughs> this is like feeding people vegetables and making them eat it because they should be eating it. And, um, and my publisher said, you have to write about your own story and get people to really care about you and why we're listening to you talk about public health. And so it actually was really hard for me to write the initial part of my book, my story, and um, and the story of my upbringing, because there were a lot of details that I had blocked out. I mean, my immigration story, of course, I knew. I knew that my parents and I came to, to the U.S. just before I turned eight. But there was a lot of my upbringing, including in China and in the early years of our immigrating to the U.S. that I never talked about before. And also, didn't really think about. I think I had just blocked it out of my mind. Growing up, I knew that my my grandparents and my parents suffered a lot during the Cultural Revolution, as did their entire generations. There were all these things. We, we should point out to people, this was the period in which Mao cracked down on intellectuals. And in China, your grandparents uh, were academics. Mm -hmm. They were shunned and beaten and isolated uh, as part of that. So just to put it in historical context. Yes. And it's not something that I really heard about growing up. I wanted to understand more about my grandparents and their stories, but 
there was this paranoia and still is in that generation of, of Chinese people. And they would always say, well, shh, don't talk about that because somebody's listening. And I don't know that anyone was actually listening, but they just really did not want to talk about this. And so I had to piece it together um, in writing Lifelines. I knew from an early age that my parents aimed to leave China. And that's because my father was also a political dissident. He was in and out of jail for various political activities. We knew that his future in China would be very limited. My mother... Was, and we should just say, if I could interrupt you, you, you write about the fact that he would come in and out of your life and you didn't quite know where he went because no one talked about it. But he would come back pale and, and gaunt and he would have spent time in, in prison intermittently, which is um, quite a memory, I'm sure. But go ahead. I'm sorry I to interrupt you. No, I mean, something else that I don't think I quite understood until much later was how much my mother also struggled and in particular, the types of sacrifices that she made. Um, my mother was younger at the time of the Cultural Revolution, and formal schooling was stopped at the point that she was in fifth grade. And so the last year of school that she went to was the fifth grade. And then when the revolution ended, everyone had the opportunity to apply for college, which she did. And she was able to test into college with no more than a fifth grade formal education because she studied on her own by candlelight with books that her mother smuggled to her. I mean, these were the kinds of incredible stories that I wish that I had a chance to really talk to my my mother about. Um, and for reasons that we could get into later in the podcast, I wasn't able to. She also was an intermittent figure in your life because she was off studying for a period of time. She had to live on campus. You lived with your grandparents. So you were actually in many ways closer to your grandparents, who were sort of the nurturing figures in your life, than your mother, who, uh, as you describe in your book, was really not. I had so much resentment for my mother growing up. And that's something that I didn't quite come to terms with until, frankly, until I started writing this book. And then I felt so guilty and so ashamed of it, because why was my mother absent? So when I was growing up in China, my mother was in college. And at that time in China, the students were not really supposed to have children. My, my mother was much older than the other kids because she, because of the timing of, of when colleges were, were opening up. She had to live on campus. And so she couldn't see me for that reason. And then when we moved to the U.S., my mother came first. We ended up living in this little town in Logan, Utah. Yes, Utah and, State um, University. Yeah. <laughs> right, which is maybe not exactly where one might end up. Actually, I don't know that I put this in the book, but my, my mother had gotten into two colleges. She got into Utah State in, in Logan, Utah. She also got into University of Illinois in Chicago. She went to her mentor. These are obviously pre-Google or AltaVista yes. or whatever days, yeah. right? And she went to her, her mentor and said, where should I go? And the mentor said, oh, Utah. That's where it's at. And so that's how we ended up in Utah. But Yeah. Um, what was interesting to me about your um, your experience in Utah was you, you write kind of, you know, wistfully or, or um, uh, warmly, I should say, about your time there. You talk about the fact that you had no money, your family, when you came there. And mysteriously, a bag of clothing arrived at your doorstep and that it was kind of a nurturing community. I assume it was a largely an LDS Mm -hmm. community or Mormon community. Yes. But it, there was quite a contrast between your experience in those early years in Utah and your the next chapter in your life in Los Angeles, which was a lot less welcoming. Right. Um, we, my parents had spent all their money on applying for a visa, buying plane tickets. And so by the time that we got to the U.S., we had $40 and that was it. We had no clothing. I mean, we came from southern China to this really cold place in the mountains of Utah in December. I remember going to school wearing five pairs of pants and six sweaters, and we didn't have heat. Um, we dried our clothes. We didn't have a laundry machine or, or um, when we washed our, our, clo our clothing by hand and dried them outside. I remember wringing it, and then they were full of icicles, and the clothing actually broke. 
And so that's how cold it was. But we were, again, really lucky because we did have neighbors who and, and members of the church who took us in. I mean, I didn't know any English when I arrived. No one made fun of me. And in fact, they taught me English. I went to Sunday school and Sunday school was an opportunity to also learn this new language. But going back to my mother, I have this other vivid memory of this time, which was my mother had said to me, you need to learn English, which which was obviously the correct thing to do. But, you know, I was a child. I didn't really understand the things that I had to do to learn English. As my mother said to me, you need to learn a hundred new vocabulary words every day to memorize the spelling, the definition, the usage of the word. And she would drill me at night. But what did that mean? She was studying and then working. And she would come home in the middle of the night and wake me up, drill me on vocabulary words. And I remember being so resentful of that. Like, who, who else has to wake up in the middle of the night to memorize 100 words? But now, as a working mom myself, I just think, how tired must my mother have been? And how ungrateful was I? I mean, she, I'm sure she would have wanted nothing more than to put her feet up and then go to bed. But here she was waking me up this kind of ungrateful child moaning about being woken up. To, but that's the reason why, though, I learned English so quickly. You know who tells a similar story is Barack Obama. When he was in uh, Indonesia and his mother was tutoring him and and he was grumpy about it. And she said, yeah, this is no picnic for me either, Buster. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure your mom probably felt that way. But you obviously mastered it quickly. You, you won a spelling bee like two years after you got there. You obviously were a good student, a quick learner. I felt like I had to be. As in, I start the book, um, Lifelines, with a, um, with a quote in Chinese called chiku, which means to eat bitter. And the the whole phrase is supposed to mean you eat bitter in order to taste sweet, as in other people are sacrificing so that you could benefit from that. And I think I carried very much that sense of my parents, my grandparents, everybody sacrificing. At that time, I was the only child. And then my little sister was born when, when I was 11. She was sent back to China with the understanding that when my parents were settled more, when we had figured out our money issues, our immigration issues, she would come back. And I felt this great burden on me, actually, to get settled myself so that my sister could, could come back to the U.S. And you uh, worked uh, all kinds of jobs. At one point, I, I forget the sequencing, you were out and much to your parents' chagrin, you were, you were panhandling in order to help support the family. You also, you write about your early experience. You went on to LA, which was a much rougher environment, moved from place to place, spent some time in a shelter with your mother while your father spent time in a shelter for men. Two things that struck me about that. One is that must have been incredibly hard for a young kid. And like, how did you maintain your studies and your any sort of semblance of normalcy. The other was, as you write, there are a lot of programs that ultimately helped support you through these difficult times and gave you an appreciation for that social safety net that sometimes gets disparaged, but is a lifeline for people. Yeah, I mean, my parents were professionals in China who they knew when they came to the U.S. that they would be working really hard. But I don't think they expected this level of struggle just to get by. I mean, my father was an engineer in China. And when he came to the U.S. because he didn't speak English and also we had issues with his immigration status, he worked to deliver newspapers and wash dishes in a restaurant. My mother had come to the U.S. to get a Ph.D., but then realized she couldn't really find a job easily with that. And so ended up studying separately to, um, to, to become a teacher. She ended up becoming a second grade teacher in Los Angeles. But during this period, she was working, cleaning hotel rooms and working in a video store. And we still could not make ends meet. We still depended on Medicaid for our health insurance when my mother was pregnant with my sister on a WIC. Um, and you mentioned that we there were periods where we were experiencing homelessness. I mean, instability 
characterized my childhood. We often didn't know where we were going to be. I mean, there was a moment too where that I talk about in the book about how we didn't know what was going to happen with our immigration status. And my my parents had this plan where my where my parents were going to get divorced. My father was going to enter a a so called paper marriage with someone. My mother and I were supposed to move to Canada. I mean, we had bought our plane tickets to go to Canada when we were granted political asylum. And I just think about all these moments when. Something could have gone in a very different direction, and who knows where I would be right now? Maybe I would be here today as a dreamer. I mean, all these things that we, as you mentioned, David, that that somehow are seen as entitlements that immigrants get somehow. I mean, that was never our intention as a family. We were so fortunate to have these services at different points in our lives that helped us to get to where we are. Then I wanted to make sure to tell those stories too because. That was also our lifeline. You went to college at the age of fourteen. Thirteen, but <laughs> but who's counting? Who's counting? I was just testing to see if you、uh, <laughs> if you remember that. But I mean, that's that's extraordinary in and of itself. You went to Cal State, L.A. Explain why you decided to go to college at such an early age. Yeah, and I'll tell you why I did not, or what was not the decision. Because sometimes when people find out that I went to college young, they say, "Oh, you must have been bored in school, or you must have been really smart." Neither of which are true. As in, I went to college early out of necessity, which is something that I will. I have two little kids. I have a four-year-old,、um, a son who just turned four,、mm-hmm. and a one-year-old. I would not want them to go down this path at all.、Um, you mentioned my instability growing up. I didn't have friends. I didn't have friends because I moved to so many different places.、Um, I because I went to college young, and I was so. I never. I didn't really want to tell people my age. I was so embarrassed about being a young person in college. I didn't really make friends until after medical school. I mean, this is not the life that I would want. And so, the, so why did I initially go? Was My parents had very difficult finances at that time. My sister, they they didn't think that my、um, they could take care of of me and my sister. My sister was sent back to China when she was just three weeks old. Something that I have really I get emotional thinking about this now because I can't imagine sending my own kids away when they are three weeks old and not seeing them for more than three years, as 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 was the case here. But I thought I wanted to find a way to work. And go to school at the same time, and not have my parents worry about me, so that we could bring my sister back. And so I found out about this program at Cal State LA that was a work study program, where I was good at science, I could work in a lab, and I could if I the only thing was I had to test into college, and they also had an early entry program. So I guess I tried to channel my mother in that moment. I thought if she could get into college with a fifth grade education, here I had an eighth grade education. <laughs> And so I can get into college, and I and so I did. But again, I would not, you know, I'm I'm thankful to have had this opportunity. I was able to meet some incredible mentors in college who really believed in me. But this is not the path that I would choose if I had other,、um, if I had、um, another option. I mean, were there other kids as young as you? You say you had no friends. I mean, was there, was this a common thing for people as as young as thirteen in that program? So Cal State LA did have this early entrance program that allowed me to test into. There were other students. I think a couple dozen other students for my age. I didn't really get to know them though, and in retrospect, I regret it. I mean, retrospect, I think I would have had a lot in common with these other students. But I, you know, I didn't think that I was in college to make friends. Frankly, I thought I was there. To get through, I mean, I was working a lab the for how however many hours I was allowed. I think twenty, thirty hours or or more a week. I I wanted to be able to do that. I was also doing some tutoring on the side to try to make money, and I, I wanted to get through my my courses. And I also didn't know how I was going to go to medical school. I mean, I had this dream from when I was young that、yeah. I wanted to go to medical school, but my um my parents didn't. I mean, we literally didn't know anyone who was a doctor, as in. I had a pediatrician, but my parents didn't know people who were physicians. I couldn't go to someone to ask, "How do I get into medical school?" And it wasn't. It actually took a long time. I had said to my mentors that my goal was to become a lab tech, because my parents had a friend whose daughter was a lab tech. I thought it was believable, and it took years actually for me to admit that what I wanted to do was to enter medicine. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. Your interest in medicine, you speak about it almost from the beginning of your book. You tell this really, really tragic story of a a young boy who lived in the same building as you did in L.A., who had an asthma attack and died because he didn't have you didn't have the right inhaler there for him or the inhaler wasn't working. And his mother, who was an undocumented immigrant, was afraid to call for help because she was afraid that her immigration status would be uncovered. And this boy, Tony, became an inspiration to you. Yeah, very much so. And I also had asthma myself growing up. And so I had a lot of interactions myself in China with the medical system. And I understood that fear of when you have asthma, you can breathe in, but then you can't fully exhale. And then your next breath, you breathe in more, but then you still can't exhale. I I know that feeling so well and the fear of not knowing whether you're going to have your next breath. And then I saw this happen right in front of my eyes with this neighbor. I think I was about 10 at the time, and this boy was about eight. I can still see that moment as if it were yesterday. And I think it was this moment of recognizing that our society doesn't value people the same way and that we do not see healthcare as the fundamental human right that I strongly believe that it is. And so I had this vision early on that I wanted to work in communities like the ones that I grew up in. And I felt very strongly that I wanted to go and work in the ER. I went to medical school before the days of the Affordable Care Act. And so I never wanted to be in a position where I had to turn patients away because of lack of health insurance, because they couldn't pay, because of where they happened to come from. Um, And I was glad to be in the ER, but of course, it was also in the ER that I saw the limitations of what we do in medicine and actually that public health is, is that path in order to try to make a change in a more systemic way. And of course, the fact that so many people had to come to the ER just to get basic health care because they had nowhere else to turn is one of the manifestations of what's uh, wrong with our, our health care system. You entered medical school at, at 18. You went into an MD-PhD program. Again, there was a financial incentive to do that. Tell me what that experience was like. You, you moved to St. Louis, Washington University in St. Louis, fine medical school there. What was it like coming to St. Louis? I love St. Louis. Um, actually, Baltimore, where I live now, is it reminds me a lot of, of St. Louis. Um, there are deep problems, but also a lot of really committed, amazing people. Um, I also actually loved medical school. Um, it was getting into medical school was very hard. I remember um, I had talked to my pre-med office and my pre-med office had said to me, with your test scores and your grades, there are people who apply to 40 medical schools um, who are like you, and they don't get into any of them. I said this to my mentor, Dr. Raymond Garcia, and he said to me, in that case, you have to apply to 41 <laughs> And I mean, yeah. I was so fortunate to people like that. And, and you mentioned that I applied to the MD-PhD program because they provided a full scholarship. And I thought there was no way. I mean, I just could not fathom the amount of debt that one would have to go into if I didn't have a full scholarship. And, and of course, when I started medical school, I I realized that the PhD path was not the right one for me. I still really like science. I value working in a lab, but I also got exposed to health policy. Um, when I was a first-year medical student, I attended a, a conference at the American Medical Student Association, and I met people across the country who were doing work on advocating for healthcare, for universal healthcare, working on reducing disparities. I mean, all these things that I was really passionate about. And I thought, I mean, it was hard for me to leave the PhD program, especially given the financial commitment and the mentorship that I that I had already been getting. But I ended up doing, um, I ended up switching paths. And then again, my medical school was fantastic. I took a lot of time off during medical school. I took a year off between second and third year medical school, a year off between third and fourth year, two years off between medical school and residency to pursue other things, including for a year, I was the president. I was the national president of AMSA and worked in DC full-time. I did global health work. I mean, I loved all these other things and my medical school was very tolerant of, of these other activities that, that I was doing. So what's striking me is not just that you were what, 22 years old when you became president of this organization. I'm sure you were younger than most of the people who were 
engaged in this, most of the medical students who were engaged in this. But you also talk about another aspect of your life that was so striking to me, and that is that you were a stutterer. You had an issue with stuttering. Tell me about that and how how you overcame that. I still consider myself to be a person who stutters. So when from the time that I was very little, really for as long as I can possibly remember, speech was probably the major barrier in my life. As in growing up in school, I thought about speech all the time because there would be words that I would be afraid that I would be disfluent in. As in, I might not be able to say the word sandwich, but if I felt like that was coming, I would say the one with the turkey. Or Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to say pencil. I thought P might be a problem, so I would say something to write with. I mean, I, as it turns out, there's a name for people with this type of condition that is being a covert stutterer, as in there are some people who speech impediment is such that there's no way they could hide their disfluency. But for people who are covert stutterers, we can hide it. And in a way, it makes it worse because we know that there's a way to circumvent this. And then it becomes such a source of shame and stigma. Actually, I did not address this issue of stuttering until I was well into my my mid-20s. I was in medical school when I addressed this issue. And I remember meeting my speech therapist for the first time who said to me, the way to really work on, on your speech is to acknowledge that you are a person who stutters. And I basically ran from her office saying, I can't do this. And it took many months of meeting other people who stutter, including people who are lawyers and professors and NASA astronauts and stand-up comedians and other people for me to recognize I am not alone here. And so I still very much consider myself to be a person who stutters. The moment I begin to think I'm not is the moment that I begin to have all these thoughts again about hiding my stuttering. And so Braden Harrington, who spoke yes, at, a young at the man DNC. who spoke at the convention. Yes, yes. I, I mean, um, I, I belong to um, to to a group for uh, for people who stutter, and we all talked about this. And I actually wrote a post column about Braden Harrington and what this meant, and what this meant to me and to other people, especially us who are covert stutters, is something very different. I think than maybe other people who are listening, because a lot of people heard Braden and thought that's great. We really applaud him. President Biden, how amazing that they connected. I mean, that's the right takeaway too. But for me, the takeaway is you can be a great communicator and still be disfluent because fluency does not equal being a communicator, a good communicator. You could be totally fluent and not be a good storyteller and communicator as well. That ultimately this is about saying what you want to say when you want to say it. And Braden and showing his disfluency that's what I had wished for my entire life. So you hid this. So d- did you not uh, suffer the kind of, you know, we heard Biden himself, uh, who's been more and more open about his struggles with stuttering, talk about being teased when he was a kid and so on. Did you not go through that? I wasn't teased because of my stuttering, but I avoided social situations in order for others to not hear my stuttering. As in, I actively chose not to have friends because that would limit the amount of time that I would spend with them. I mean, it takes a lot of mental energy to plan two sentences ahead in case you might stutter on that word. (laughs) And I actually, once I stopped trying to circumvent my own speech, I recognized how much space there was in my brain (laughs) to do other things because I wasn't thinking two sentences ahead. So it wasn't until after I addressed my stuttering that I actually started making friends for the first time, real friends for the first time, because before that, I wasn't willing to let people see who I actually was. And that's actually, that was around the time that I read, as hokey as it sounds, that was around the time that I read Bill Clinton's autobiography. And he had talked about how the Rhodes Scholarship was how he made these lifelong friends. And I don't know that this is why normal people apply to to Rhodes, but I read that book and thought, I would love to have friends. <laughs> and so I think the Rhodes Scholarship, that's a great thing for me to do. <laughs> hey, and, and you did make friends when you were over there, including you in a bookstore ran into your future husband, Sebastian. But you spent two years studying public health there and then returned to Boston, to Brigham and Young Hospital, the emergency room services there. You did your residency there. During that period, you got a call from your mother 
and it was unusual because you didn't you, you and your mother had a as you've already said had a very distant relationship but she called you because she was ill it was a transformative event in in your relationship and it took place over the course of 8 years so my mother was um my mother called me when when I was still in medical school as a second year medical student in St. Louis my mother called me to say that something was wrong. She didn't know what it was, but she wasn't feeling right. And my mother was someone who never complained about anything. I mean, she worked so hard. She never complained about anything related to her health. She always took care of everybody else and not herself. And she said that she was having trouble walking up the stairs. She was tired all the time. She'd gone to doctors and doctors were saying, oh, well, you're a teacher. Maybe you have a cold. At some point, she was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. In any case, it took her a while, but she was eventually diagnosed with what turned out to be, by then, metastatic breast cancer, cancer that by then had spread to her lungs, her bones, and her brain. I, one of the reasons why I took the initial year off from, from medical school was to be with her, to help see her through her, her initial rounds of chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. I was then, I flew back and forth over the course of the next eight years, and I was in residency when she eventually died from her cancer. You know, there's a lot that that I can talk about here. I mean, one is the disconnect that so many patients face that I experienced firsthand because I, here I was going through my medical training. I saw that doctors and nurses were trying to do the right thing. I mean, nobody was trying to misdiagnose our patients or not listen to our patients. But then patients and families were also feeling left out. And in particular, patients and families who come from more, more vulnerable backgrounds, who have a language barrier or social economic barriers. And I wanted to figure out how to bridge that disconnect. So I think that shaped the course of what I ended up doing um, in patient advocacy. But also, you mentioned my, my relationship with, with my mother. My mother and I had many difficult conversations in that time. There were all these years of arguments, and and um, we we went through many months of not speaking to one another. So I think it was hard for us to make up for lost time. And I don't think we really did that. I don't think we really forgave each other. And it really wasn't until right before her death that we connected on a level that I wish that we had our entire lives. Now, my, my mother passed away in, in 2010, so she never had a chance to meet my children. And I think about her every single day. I mean, my mother loved kids. She was a teacher. She wanted nothing more than one day to have grandkids. And part of why I ended up writing this book too was I want my children one day to be able to read about their grandmother. It was so sad. You you write, throughout my childhood and adolescence, I had what can euphemistically be called a challenging relationship with my mother. I looked up to her and was always seeking her approval, which she never gave. If I received a grade of 99 on a test, she'd ask what I got wrong and why I was careless. If I got 100, then the test must have been too easy. I loved music and played the piano and violin. If I entered a competition and didn't win, she'd say others must have done better. On the rare occasions I did triumph, she'd comment that music was a waste of time and a distraction from studying. How painful. <laughs> I'm sure to some degree, I mean, you, you've been fantastically successful. Part of that is chasing that approbation that never came. You know, I, I don't know that that was my drive at all um, in terms of what I ended up doing in my career. But... I mean, I see your point that I, I just always had this impression that I could never please my mother, that there was really there was nothing that I could do that would make her happy. Um, and she was also not at all a physical person. And growing up, I can really count on two hands, maybe even one hand, the number of times that I got a hug from her. I think that with my little sister, I try to be very different. Um and with my children now, I try to be very different to the point of overcorrecting, as I might. My husband is always like, oh, you're smothering the kids. You're always kissing them and hugging them. And my, my four-year-old is starting to say, oh, mom, mommy, gross, which I was hoping that there would be more years before the gross, <laughs> the gross mommy kisses thing came. But um, I mean, I, I think about this now as, as a mom. I don't I don't know how I want to be as a mother. I mean, I grew up in difficult circumstances. I don't want my children to grow up in similarly challenging circumstances. I, I want them to be appreciative of their privilege, but I don't want them to feel guilty because of it. 
And I'm not quite sure、um, where that balance of pushing them, praising them—do I praise them for everything just because they did something that's a good job? I mean, I, I don't know. And so I'm I'm open to to advice from from you and, and your listeners. Yeah. Well, look, I've got three and two grandchildren. I still haven't figured the thing out completely. <laughs> but I was really moved when you wrote later in the book that a few years ago I was cleaning out our old house when I found a large box with my name on it. Inside were clippings of every news story I'd ever appeared in. Dating back to my college years, there were college newsletters that featured awards that she said at the time were worth nothing. There was my graduation program, which she must have hunted down from somewhere, and some photos from the ceremony I'd never seen, and some letters that she wrote to you that were very effusive that she never sent.、Uh, how sad that you couldn't connect on that level. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that I wish I could say to my mother now. I mean, my mother and I were having such a serious disagreement that she refused to attend my graduation from college.、Um, and then it turns out, in looking at this, it looked like there were photos that somebody took. I don't know if she took them and actually went and took photos, or whether she asked somebody else to take photos somehow. But I mean, that's the kind of thing that I just I. Wish that I were able to connect with her now. There's so much that I wish I, I. I think. I mean, I don't know this for a fact, of course, but I just. I think if she were here, we would be really close now because we could connect over my children. Yeah.、Um, my mother had always said that as soon as I have children, that she would move in and live with and live with me. I don't know how my husband would actually feel <laughs> about that, but you know. But I, I think that she, my mother would have really wanted to do that, and I think we would have connected in such a different way that we'll never have a chance to. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I want to talk to you about your experience in Baltimore. You were、uh, appointed the、uh, public health director for the, the city of Baltimore, which is a city that has a,、uh, many, many public health challenges, and where a lot of the disparities that you spoke about earlier are very much uh, uh, front and center. And you sort of transformed. That agency in a much more sort of activist way. Talk about some of the initiatives that you undertook. You mentioned one earlier, which was、uh, to really go after opioid deaths in the city by equipping people with.、Uh, now, how do I say this? The medication that you distributed throughout the city, naloxone. Is yes, that the, exactly. Naloxone.、Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. There were so many other initiatives, anti-violence initiatives,、um, and by the way, vaccination initiatives. Talk about how you viewed that job and how you think you helped build a model there. Well, I again had initially intended to write the book entirely about Baltimore, so thank you for for asking about this.、Um, being the health commissioner for this for Baltimore in particular was my dream job. This is the oldest continuously operating health department in the country, and also has a long history of having、um, of, of having directors of the agency who are young. Go-getters who are able to get a lot done in a city that understands the value of public health in being a crucial tool to advance social justice aims.、Um, my predecessors, Peter Bielinson and Josh Sharpstein, were also in their 30s when when they took on the the role, and they championed many of these progressive initiatives that I was really、um, that they were very proud of, and that I continued and and continued in their legacy as well. Um, the mayor that I was appointed under initially,、uh, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake, had a saying that if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority, and I really believed in that. I mean, public health ends up being about everything. I mean, my agency covered. Um, the things as wide spanning as school health for every single one of our 180 schools, to running senior centers, to doing animal control and food inspection for every restaurant and bar. I mean, there's a lot. You have to do it all. But what is the priority? And so coming in, I said my three priorities are treating addiction,、um, improving health for children. And assisting with the most vulnerable, that we have to, in addition to improving health, we have to focus on reducing disparities. And so, our naloxone、um, work, I, I was very proud of, because 
we had to come in and do something. Um, I strongly believe that um, the opportunity in public health is you have the trifecta. You're able to work in policy and change the policy. You're able to implement these services directly. And then you're able to work in public education as well. And so with naloxone, we were able to get legislation changed in, in, in Maryland such that in June of 2015, I was able to issue a blanket prescription which is essentially a prescription for every resident in the city for naloxone. So 620,000 people got a prescription in my name, a little bit frightening as the physician to sign six, essentially 620,000 scripts. But the idea is that everyone should be able to save a life. And then we did that tens of thousands of trainings on how to do this across our city. And everyday residents were able to use naloxone to save over 3,000 lives in that three-year period. And we should point out this is a drug that you can use to intervene if someone is suffering from the effects of an opioid overdose. So it literally can bring people back to life who are on the precipice there. Absolutely. And that's the kind of work that we did that sometimes in public health, there is almost a decision paralysis, as in if public health, by definition, it means your health is affected by the air that you breathe, the food that you eat, and then in return, education, um, public safety, these are all affected by health. And so sometimes people think, well, where can I even begin if everything is affected by everything else? But we try to show under my direction in Baltimore that you have to do something. We started a program, for example, to get glasses for every child who needs them in the city after a study showed that up to 10,000 of our school kids needed glasses but didn't have them. I mean, I don't need another study to tell me that if kids can't see, they can't read, they can't learn. And that's not the solution. Glasses are not the only solution to our education crisis. But if that's something tangible that we can be doing, then we should do that. And so we used a very pragmatic approach to address many of these issues, including, as you mentioned, to treat violence as a public health issue. Um, We also had programs to treat racism as a public health issue, even back in 2015. And I was really proud of those types of innovative efforts that I thought put public health on the map, because otherwise people don't understand what it is. And actually, in the time of COVID, we've seen what happens when public health is deprioritized because public health becomes underinvested and undervalued. And so we have to show every day why it matters. So while, for example, we work on longer term projects about improving cardiovascular health, in the short term, we also partnered with ShopRite, a local grocer, to deliver fresh fruits and vegetables to seniors who otherwise would have to take two buses and walk 10 blocks to get to go to a grocery store. We, did, we partnered with ShopRite and, and got groceries right to senior centers and to libraries. I mean, something like that puts the face on public health and illustrates to people why it really matters. I don't want to dwell on this. You had a brief interregnum when you left Baltimore to take a position as uh, the leader of Planned Parenthood for a period of months, it turned out. And you can read in the book the, the philosophical differences that led to your short tenure there. I think it's pretty compelling what you wrote and what you reasoned. But I have a different question about that. As people can hear from this extraordinary story of yours, your life has been a series of triumphs of successes, college at 13, medical school, Rhodes Scholarship. You know, you were, what, 30, 31 when you became health commissioner of Baltimore, and you were a transformative figure there. This was a national story when you got hired at Planned Parenthood, and it was a national story when you left Planned Parenthood. And I'm wondering how you dealt with that very public, I don't want to call it a failure, because I I don't think, I mean, if you read what you wrote about it, you you wouldn't think of it that way. But in the public sphere, it was treated as you came and you left. How did you process that? Someone who's constantly made her marks? Well, I'll answer it in two different ways. One is I actually think that so much of my life wasn't about successes, as in, you know, one of my, my mentors is um, the late Congressman Elijah Cummings, yes. who talked about how... Um, It's your pain that fuels your passion that becomes your purpose. Yes. And so much of my life was about some degree of pain that became my overriding purpose. And so I I guess I, I haven't, I mean, I appreciate your kind words, but I don't really think of my life as having a bunch of successes. I think about it as something terrible 
that spurred me to work on a particular issue and then yeah. having and then working to overcome things that were very difficult in my life, including my mother's illness and stuttering. And I talk in the book about infertility and postpartum depression and other other things that were that were painful. So that's that's one thing. But the second thing, to your point, I mean, it was very difficult. The um, my entire experience at Planned Parenthood was very challenging. Leaving was very challenging, too. I mean, I went to Planned Parenthood because I was very concerned about the state of women's health that women today are more likely to die in pregnancy than our mothers. Black women are three times more likely to die during labor and delivery because, um, not only because of labor and delivery, but because women in general are not having our health needs being met. I also thought there is a real danger if Planned Parenthood is being pegged as abortion and instead, we really need to be talking about all these services that's involved in women's health, and we should be expanding these services. It's the yeah. better message, but the right thing to do. And so, I mean, it was hard. You know, I tried really hard to reposition the organization. Um, in a way, it was hubris to think that it could work because one of my predecessors in the 1990s, an advanced practice nurse named Pam Moraldo, tried to do it too, and it didn't work. Um, and so I would just say, you know, I have a lot of respect for the organization, a, a lot of respect for what the health centers continue to do to care for underserved women and families. And on my end, I mean, I, you know, I recognize that there are things that you try, you try to implement a big vision, doesn't always work, doesn't always play out as publicly as this did. But in on my end, I was very glad to have had the opportunity to try and I also think that the work that I'm doing now in public health and the work that I think we all have ahead of us in public health is is so important. That stuck out to me, that quote from Congressman Cummings, who, who I admired so much myself, partly because I have a child with, with epilepsy. It was a horrendous experience. It has been my wife, who was in such pain and was as shy as could be, my wife Susan, when all this started, became a global leader on this issue and started an organization called Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. And I saw that sequence. I saw the pain become passion and give her purpose. Because of that purpose, she's made a real difference in the world. And uh, so I, boy, that resonated with me. That was such wisdom. But he was a guy who was uh, replete with wisdom in so many different ways. Let's talk about where we are today on this virus. You, you, you returned to George Washington University you're, you're in public health. You're leading on that issue there, and you're writing for the Post and your uh, Washington Post, and you're you're commenting on CNN. And a lot of it has been about this virus during this period. One of the things that struck me—I mentioned it earlier—when you were in Baltimore, you talked about getting 99% of the kids in the public schools vaccinated for measles when there was a measles outbreak in Baltimore. A lot of the resistance to vaccination has been in communities of color. Tell me about why you think that is and how that can be overcome. And, and then there are a series of other issues related to this I want to ask you about. Of course. So I'll share two anecdotes, both from, from, uh, from Baltimore, one from, from before and one from now. Every year at the beginning of school year, so I used to oversee school health, and every year at the beginning of, of each school year, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of, of families that had not met the vaccination requirements in order to enter public school. Now, while maybe some of them, a very, very small handful, might actually have philosophical or religious reasons as to why they're not getting vaccinated, the vast, vast majority just didn't get around to it. As in, they had so much else going on in their lives. I mean, I think about my own childhood. My, my, my parents were worried about making rent. They were worried about staying in this country. We, we didn't know where we were going to live. You know, the childhood vaccinations are not at the top of your list when there's so much else going on. That was the case for nearly all these families that just did not get around to getting the vaccine. We then ended up setting up clinics. We brought children via buses to our, our health centers. We brought the vaccines directly to schools to get kids vaccinated. I mean, those were the kinds of efforts that were really helpful. So it was a combination of getting access and 
making the vaccines mandatory. Making them an opt out was so crucial to reach this specific population who actually don't have a reason to not get vaccinated, except that they just didn't get around to it. The second anecdote that I'll give you is I still work in an、uh, in an urgent care clinic here、um, in Baltimore clinically, and I, I was in clinic this morning, but also just in general, I still see a large number of patients who are not yet vaccinated. Very few of them. Again, the same anecdote, the same kind of of, of analogy here. Very few of them actually are because of some deep seated religious reason. I mean, no, I've talked to no one who said their reason is they they think that they think it's related to President Trump or some Republican politician. I mean, that's not the reason for the communities that I serve who are still vaccine hesitant. These are individuals who have questions, who have real concerns that that need to be addressed, but who, when required for work. Or when required for travel, or when required to enter a bar or a restaurant or something else that they want to do, they will get the vaccine. They need that additional nudge or push, and I really believe that that's where our country has to go. Yes, you've been outspoken about that. It seems like we're moving in that direction now, especially with the、uh, authorization for the Pfizer vaccine for regular use. That has. Embolden more organizations to、uh, mandate vaccination. Just today, the city of Chicago said every employee has to be vaccinated by October fifteenth. Which, by the way, drew an objection from the police union of all groups of people. They're probably more vulnerable and exposed than any group because they're out there dealing with the public all the time. I, I find that there are all kinds of complicated reasons for it. But do you see this happening? Do you see us being able to greatly reduce the number of unvaccinated? There are ninety million of them right now, through such mandates. I do, and I think this is our last and best hope. I mean, we're not going to get there. We're not going to increase our vaccination rates dramatically by. Pleading with people,、um, the polls that are showing that three in ten, three in ten people, once the、um, once the vaccine is fully FDA approved, they're not lining up today to get vaccinated just because the FDA approval has come through. These are individuals who really need that additional push,、um, and so I, I think it is going to be through mandates. I mean, we have to make vaccination the easy and convenient choice, and I really think. This the direction that we need to go is the direction that other countries have gone in, that the city of San Francisco most recently has has gone in, which is to say, it's your choice to stay unvaccinated. That's fine, but if you want to enter the public sphere and interact with others, you don't have a right to give other people who are vaccinated or who are young kids who are not yet eligible to be vaccinated. You don't have the right to give them a potentially deadly disease.、Um, and I think we need to start talking about staying unvaccinated. The same way that we talk about drunk driving, you can drink on your own, but you do not have the right to go into public and drive a vehicle intoxicated, where you could potentially harm others. I mean, it feels like we're, you know, we're, we've been hesitant to take that hard line, and I've actually been quite critical of the Biden administration for not moving a lot faster on this. I wish that they had early on gotten behind proof of vaccination. I think it's ridiculous that we have this flimsy CDC paper card that you can buy on Amazon for a couple of dollars and fake、um, really easily. I don't understand how we're doing that. Instead of actually having a secure system, I mean, we have when you go to the airport, you know, we don't use the honor system. When people ask you, "Hey, what's who? Who are you for your identification?" You, you don't say, "Well, trust me、right. that I'm I am who I say I am." I, you know, you put your luggage through a metal detector because we don't trust people on issues like this. We shouldn't for vaccine status either. Well, one of the reasons that it hasn't happened is because you have pockets of resistance and governors actually signing legislation banning. Vaccine passports, like the governor of Florida, which is now the epicenter of this fourth wave of the pandemic, and so much of it relates to trust. There are lots of mistakes that you can point to along the way, and many of them would be laid at President Trump's feet. But his overall political project was to essentially assault trust in public institutions of all sorts, and that includes public health. And scientists and doctors, and、uh, we've seen that. That has had mortal consequences for hundreds of millions of Americans. And what I really worry about is what's going to happen next time. As in, we've seen a number of state legislatures actually pass laws already 
that are restricting the power of public health authorities on issues like quarantine and masking. So what happens, for example, if there is a if there are individuals who have multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and now the public health authority is not allowed to quarantine them against their wishes anymore? Or what happens if there is another outbreak of measles or chickenpox or some other yet to be discovered virus and we now need to be implementing mask mandates, but now public health authorities are not able to do that? I mean, I actually am so worried about not just COVID. I mean, I think at some point we are going to get through COVID. But I worry that public health, which was previously in the sleepy backwaters, which is not good either. I mean, it's not good because then it ends up it ends up being the first thing on the chopping block when it comes to the budget because people don't understand it. But now it's become in the middle of political, ideological, culture wars. And it's now seen as some kind of partisan issue. And I really worry about what's going to happen in the future. And actually, my my advice, and I, I you know, again, maybe nobody's asking me for, for this, but um, if there were local health officials, primarily in Republican areas, um, that are asking me for for advice on on what they should be doing around COVID to try to depoliticize, my advice would be stop talking about COVID. For many people, this is not the way that it should be, right? But for many people. COVID has become so politicized. Even talking about vaccines or talking about masking, half the people in some areas or more are going to tune you out and not trust you because of that. I think that public health officials really need to start talking about other things that they're doing for the public that are not at all COVID-related. Things like lead remediation or um, senior or services for seniors on preventing falls or providing glasses for children. I mean, things that are not controversial. I think we really need to take that approach to try to take public health out of this partisan political sphere, or else we're going to have many worse downstream consequences after COVID. Yeah. And they're fighting a headwind there because there are politicians in these areas who see political profit in exploiting misinformation and fears and prejudice against uh, experts and institutions and government for their own political gain. And so they're eager to fan these controversies. You know, before we go on this subject, you know, as I said, you're a very prominent spokesperson on this, and, and you've been unstinting in standing up for public health principles, and I so appreciate that. What kind of backlash have you personally felt? Anybody who listened to this last hour would say, Wow, there's a great American. But how much backlash have you received as a Chinese American speaking out on these issues? You know, I think that there is some strange combination of things that somehow draws the wrath of a certain segment of the American public. It's talking about vaccines, being a woman, being a Chinese American. And then there are some people who connect me to my work before with Planned Parenthood. Somehow that is a very toxic brew that ends up with, I mean, I I will tell you, if I'm on the radio or writing a piece for for the Post, I don't really get backlash. I mean, maybe once in a while I I might get people who are disagreeing with me. That's fine. I want to have an honest policy discussion or conversation um, about, about issues. That's fine. But it's when I'm on TV. And I think there's something about how I look as a woman and as a Chinese American that draws out some extremely upsetting um, remarks um, that are that are not just disagreeing with me, but you know, directly attribute, for example, people who look like me as the reason why we have coronavirus, or that accuse me of being an agent for the for the Chinese Communist Party, which is kind of ridiculous, especially with this background that you now know, David, about my about us leaving China on political asylum. But okay, so, um, but um, but I, you know, I I actually didn't really think of myself as being Chinese American until the pandemic. I mean. I knew that I was Chinese American. I don't mean that I denied my identity, but rather that I thought of myself as a physician, as a mom, as a public health person. I mean, I didn't I didn't consciously think of myself as being Chinese American until so many others identified me as such in this context. And I've actually gotten since um, more involved with groups that are trying to stop AAPI hate, trying to raise awareness of this issue, because this is not about me. I mean, I realize that I am in some ways kind of the face of some of this of some of this targeted anger but there are so many elderly Asian Americans who even though they are now vaccinated and now can get out and about 
are afraid to go to the grocery store because they're afraid of being attacked and assaulted. I mean, that's the real problem here. Which is tragic and outrageous. And we as a country should rise up against that. But listen, I so appreciate you. I appreciate all the work that you've done. Again, I love your story and I love it primarily not because of all of your achievements, but because of your commitment to service. And uh, so many lives have benefited from that. And uh, I'm proud to know you. Thank you, David. I am proud to know you too and to work with you as part of CNN. And um, thank you for your leadership and for everything that you have done in service to our country and to, to our people. We will see you down the line. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.